Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of series 2 of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast about transition to life after sport where retired professional sportsmen and women share their stories and learnings to help current athletes prepare for their own transition journeys. Over the past four episodes we have heard from retired SAS operator Harry Moffat, three-time Olympic rower Sally Keogh, rugby league legend Steve Menzies and retired AFL star Brad Johnson. Their stories and lessons are all unique However, they have similar themes which include leveraging the skills and experiences of others, preparing early and enjoying your time as a professional athlete. Today's guest is former Test Cricket opening batsman Ed Cowan. Ed played first-class cricket for 16 years after completing a university degree and working in the real world before his cricketing performances provided the opportunity to make the sport his career. Ed has a real passion for transition and, as you are here, has some terrific experiences which I am sure will help current athletes in their own journeys. Please enjoy my conversation with Ed Cowan. Ed Cowan, it's terrific to have you join us on the uh, Wide Open Road podcast. And when we were speaking the other week, you mentioned you've got a real passion for transition for life after sport. Where did that passion come from? Okay, Ed, thanks for, for having me. Uh, thrilled to, to be on the podcast. And as you alluded to, I, it is a topic I am passionate about. I guess at the heart of it, that passion came from a couple of things. Many years before... I moved on from my time in sport. Uh, I, you know, my, my own personal journey w- was around how to try and maximise my own time as, as I transitioned out of the game, and, and that sort of started me on a journey of not only understanding how hard it was uh, emotionally, uh, but also the, the fears and the anxiety around that and how that can, in fact, affect your sport while you're playing. And so it's sort of... I guess my passion has only deepened having removed myself from sport um, you know, a few years ago now and I still feel like I'm in transition to, to a certain extent. But I guess the further I move away from sport, as my transition has sort of elongated, I'd say it's opened my eyes to how, you know, how much harder it is than probably what you realise and, and so my passion for it is, is derived from that, I guess. And if you think about the this whole issue of emotion, fear and anxiety. How did you try to sort of cope with that when you were playing cricket? And we all know that cricket is an incredibly demanding sport. You can be king one day and dunce the next day. It's pretty can be pretty brutal like that. So how did you manage to sort of combine the two areas so you weren't, you know, really, really down on one when you had to focus on something else? Yeah, I think that was actually really key for me, Ed. And, and I realised that, thankfully, at a really young age, that balance was important to my own performance. And so right through my cricket career, I was kind of weaving in what you could call extracurricular activities, whether it was be you know, education, uh, whether it was starting a business, whether it was other interests, other friends. It was really important for me to do that so that my identity wasn't solely cricket. Uh, and so, in a sense, it, well, it, it was a forced yet natural view that I took. And and I think I read the benefits of that throughout my career and, and hopefully now in a position to, to pass that on to, to younger, younger sportsmen and women. If you think about the, the upbringing you had, you know, you went to, you were fortunate enough, like, a number of the people I've spoken with went to a, a good school and 
Do you think that the influence maybe your parents had and peers around you who weren't all focused on becoming an international cricketer made a hell of a difference when it came to your own mindset around this whole issue of preparing for what's happening once sport finishes? That's a good question. I sort of look at the coin in two ways. I think there was certainly an advantage in that respect, but I think you know, I, was, I was very lucky to go to a great school and I loved my time at school. I was probably disadvantaged from a career path point of going to, to a good school in regards to cricket. So I think they probably balance themselves out, but I certainly think that the, you know, generally speaking, my friends that were non-cricket friends were high performers in a whole range of different professions, whether it be medicine, lawyers, finance, you know, very smart, capable people that I was constantly mixing with. And so my drive to have something other than just cricket, I didn't want to be known as the cricketer of, of our friendship group. Um, and so that really spurred me on. I think the support of my family to always look for a plan B and uh, you know, my dad would always be telling me from the age of 14 that education was the most important thing in regards to not only balancing cricket but what happens if you break a leg you're not actually as good as you think you are which is hard to hard to imagine as a teenager and so it was kind of ingrained not not so much from the school but just from from my family understanding that sport's fickle and there's a big wide world out there and and it's important to, to make your mark in a whole range of activities. And if sport was a vehicle to do that, then that was one way that you could certainly express it, but it, it wasn't the only way. And it was important to, to get that full breadth. Did you feel as you were going through cricket and you were obviously mixing with these high performers in other, in other areas of, of work, were you feeling like you were missing out? I mean, did you have that sort of, sort of itch in the back of your mind where you were thinking, you know what, you know, cricket's good, but, I've got 50 plus years to probably on the on the planet when I finish and I really be, need to be doing something and, and making the most of things now to ensure that I've got a really strong, solid 50 years in front of me. I mean, was that something that might have spurred you on as well? Yeah. I mean, just reflecting while you're answering the question, I'd almost say it was the other way. I, I was almost, you know, well prepared for life after cricket before cricket had even taken off, having been to university and, and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd actually seen what a slog the real world was. You know, my first job outside of university was working as an analyst in investment bank, working, I don't know, somewhere between 80 and 100 hours a week. And cricket seemed like a dream from that point of view. So I'd kind of already tasted the grind that my other non-cricket friends were on. And so... You know, cr- cricket seemed like, you know what, I'm going to give this everything knowing that I'm going to still chip away at, at these other interests uh, to ensure that when cricket finishes, I'll be okay. But at the same time, uh, it was like, you know, this is this is such a wonderful opportunity for a short period of time. And I never, ever signed more than a two-year contract because I never wanted to. I always wanted that optionality in my life. I always wanted to have having to really make that decision every time. Do I want to keep pursuing cricket or is there something else that is that is really driving me? And, and I guess what happened was my thirst to be the best cricketer that I could possibly be was deep and only deepened over time. And so I got further ingrained in, in trying to you know, play cricket for Australia and, and win Sheffield Shield titles and, and be the best teammate I could be. And so that 
that deep desire and passion really spurred me on. So it was probably the opposite of, of the answer you'd expect. Um, but that was all going on while I understood the benefit to me personally of, of expanding my horizons for my performance in cricket. You talked about the fact that you'd had a taste of the real world, which not a lot of professional sports people get to get to have the luxury to do before they become professional sports people. And I mean, when did you decide, or when did you realise that you actually had an opportunity to become a professional cricketer and have to leave the real world behind and take that back up? In your case, sixteen years later. Yeah, it was. I didn't expect it to time. be sixteen years. <laughs> yeah, it is a long time when you say it. Uh, so, I, I guess cricket was going through a, a bit of a professionalism when I first started um which is 2003 wasn't it or thereabouts 2003 so that that feels a little bit weird to even talk about uh because people just see professional sport these days and they actually forget that you know my first contract i think was six or seven thousand dollars to be a a rookie and i was a 21 year old and rookies had only just come about that was i think the second or third year of of rookie contracts you know there, there was very limited opportunity for the 18, 19, 20-year-old to be a professional sportsman. You had to earn your stripes through club cricket. You had to earn your stripes through second eleven cricket. At that point in time, New South Wales cricket, Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh, Michael Bevan, Michael Clark, Phil Jakes, you name anyone that had kind of either was about to make a name for themselves in international cricket or had made a name for themselves in international cricket, were still playing. And they were enjoying that extended professionalism of sport but there wasn't much opportunity for young players. And so it, 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 there wasn't, the, I'm going to give sport a crack at 18 because there was nothing to give a crack. You, you had to have a job. You had to either go to uni or have a job because you couldn't live off the 200 bucks a day playing second five times a year. So in a sense, it was forced. And then it got to a point where, you know, I've got a few eggs in different baskets. I'm working over here. My cricket isn't suffering, but could I be doing more? And, and I was contracted as a full contractor the following year, having played a few games. And my boss said, "Mate, you're crazy not to to really see what you can what you can do in the sporting world. And if you if you need your job back in a year, if you've if you've lost uh, either the passion for cricket or you've lost your job through loss of form, then you know come back. But uh, I don't I don't want to be the handbrake to this." And so that was a great conversation to have and one that I was grateful for because I was probably still hedging my bets, not knowing how long Steve Ball was going to play for, for instance. And so there weren't many spots up for grabs. And so I was plowing my trade in club cricket, scoring runs, keeping my head down, you know, but always looking for that deep kind of opportunity to, to really kick on. The, the supportive nature of your boss must have been incredibly important and I suspect to a certain extent, influential in in regards to being able to go boots and all into cricket, knowing that there was possibly some sort of backstop there that you could have picked back up if it didn't actually all work out? Yeah, I think that was, you know, looking back, and it's, it's probably not something I reflect on too much, It's it was massive at the time because it, it wasn't sustainable what I was doing. I was, I was getting up at let's say, 4.30 in the morning, meeting the, the physical trainer in pre-season at 5 till 6.30, getting the office at 7, going back to training, 
at three o'clock for some skills uh, for a couple of hours, going back to work, eating my dinner at my desk and working through till nine, ten o'clock at night every night, rinse and repeat. You know, that, that wasn't doing either work justice or cricket justice. And Interestingly, it- at, at that point in time, my club cricket was perhaps its best it's ever been because cricket was a joy on the weekend. It was an escape. It was something that I loved doing and and it was just a, a great reminder of why I wanted to be playing cricket. And and that sometimes, I'm sure you, you've heard this multiple times, gets lost in the, the grind of professionalism. So yeah, I'm thankful that that happened later than, than sooner. And did that ever change with respect to once you got onto the, if you like, the the treadmill of professional sport and suddenly you're expected to perform and you're expected to you know, score runs and, and, and hold your catches and do all the things that you need to do to be a good teammate and a contributor to the side. Was there ever a time where that pure love and joy of the game may have been diminished somewhat because you're on the grind? Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a, a constant conversation. Yeah, I don't think... I wouldn't say my love diminished, but there were certain times that you, you just, you know, you'd been at training for eight hours and you couldn't really understand why you'd, you why you were there or you'd had a bad week uh, form-wise or confidence-wise. Um, and so that that is the battle of professional sport, finding a way to perform even when you're not feeling like it. And I think the people that master that are the ones that have great careers and, and long careers what I did do in my last few years was re- not reignite my love but my love skyrocketed in my last couple of years of, uh, of professional sport and probably even since retiring playing club cricket on the weekend again and coming full circle and playing for Sydney Uni my love of the game has, as I said just gone through the roof again so th- there is something about finding that perfect blend of escaping the professionalism and something something should be said you know for amateur sport the word amateur is you know derived from the word to love and that sums up exactly how you should feel about the sport that you're dedicating yourself to you can blend trying to be the best athlete you can be with deeply loving it and as soon as that love isn't there it becomes pretty obvious i think you mentioned earlier about the fact that you were juggling, getting up at 4.30, training, going to work, going back to training, going back to work on the rinse and repeat cycle, which I think plenty of people who are listening to this podcast and people who have contributed to it previously would have very similar stories. Can you talk about maybe peer pressure? I guess on one hand, you're working at an investment bank and we all know that the pressures on investment bankers at any time in the cycle is pretty significant to write revenue and do deals and, and ensure you can, you know, if you like, justify your seat. Then on the other hand, you've got professional cricketers who probably don't have the two in balance and they're going, hang on, why aren't you committed to, you know, playing cricket? So can you talk about maybe the, the peer pressure that was coming from both angles that may have uh, helped or not helped when it came to your mindset around what you're actually going to do? Yeah, so, well, there was, there was no peer pressure from my employer. They were fantastic from my immediate boss, his boss, and ultimately the managing director, they, I was working there on the premise that cricket was my passion and I wanted to be a cricketer, and they loved that about me and, and how I could blend the two. There was certainly some peer pressure from some senior players around, you know, 
not taking it seriously enough, mate. Do you want this? Do you really deeply want it? And my answer to them was, I don't see you here at five o'clock, mate. So I think that was a stigma that I had to overcome just through them seeing the effort that I was putting in. I mean, because um, that, you know, that fascinates me about this kind of this stereotypical nature of what a perfect professional sports person should look like if you're looking at it from the from the lens of a of an old sort of rusted on pro that's you know that's all they've known probably since the time they were 15 or 16 or 17 and and you know many of them have done really really well but there's there's probably 20 times as many that haven't done that well or in in comparison to having long successful careers that they can leverage when they finish it must be quite at times frustrating for somebody who's got the ability to balance and blend two passions together when there would be influential people within the team environment, probably in the ears of coaches and in the ears of other people going, you know what, Ed's not that bloody committed. I reckon we should yeah. probably find someone else. I mean, did you come up against that and, and what was your, your sort of reaction to that? Yeah, I think it was certainly there, but at the same time there were some, there were some influential people who understood what I was trying to do. And I, I would always say that cricket is my priority, but on seven grand a year and some international cricketers ahead of me in the pecking order, when the time is right, I'll ensure that my commitment is absolutely at its maximum. And so I, I threw it back on them. I had a very understanding coach in Trevor Bayless who – himself had some teaching experience, you know, had come from a teaching background. There were some senior players like Stu Clark and Greg Mayle who had been to university. So it, it wasn't a completely foreign thing for people. It was probably foreign in terms of he's working two jobs and they used to call me a self-contained dink because I, I was, <laughs> you know, d- double income, no kin, no, no kids in reference to usually it's it's couples, but I was doing it in my own way, you know, hustling two jobs. But it never, I think because of the effort I was showing, my commitment to how I was preparing mentally and physically given what was in front of me. And, uh, you know, I, I took my cricket very seriously and, and they could see that. I think the reason why I became the cricketer I was was through hard work. You know, for, I wasn't the most talented player, but I found techniques and methods to, to train smart and deeply when required and make sure that I was I was ingraining myself in, in the game. So regardless of whether I, that happened at school, at university and a job, I never shirked anything. And so I think when they when they realise that, that's kind of when you know when, when things probably turned in terms of perception. And when you eventually decided that cricket was going to be a, a viable option for a period, knowing that you sounds like you signed eight two year contracts, um, if my maths is correct, no, so I, I, I think I signed about ten one year contracts and two two year contracts. <laughs> <laughs> When you decided that cricket was going to be it and you had to go to the boss and say, look, I'm going to give this a crack, did your mindset at all change around the way that you looked at the whole career of a sports person as opposed to a career of what I would call a normal citizen? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think for me it was always, as I said, that, that proposition of I, I actually need to make this work and I, I want the pressure of having to make it work. And so those shorter contracts, whether they be one year or two years, the same philosophy applies. You are not 
you are not here for a long time. You are here to make sure that you are absolutely maximising the opportunity that's given to you. And if you get the opportunity to roll this over, then you have earned that. And so I was always of the opinion that that brought the best out in me. And so there was never that career path of, you know, I'm going to be a 15-year player. It was still, right, what, what do I need to do this year to make sure that I'm playing in that team? Because I know if I'm playing in that team and I'm doing well in that team, then I've, I've got a contract. And, and the contract bit was never what really interested me. It was more how good could I be, how far could I push myself, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to for this group to, to be winning shield titles? What does what can I learn about leadership? What can I learn about building cultures? You know, so it was kind of it never felt like a career path for me. It more felt like an extension of me growing up and me learning about the world and me learning about myself and I just happened to get paid for it. You know, my my wife tells a story when we moved to Tasmania, which was the best career decision I ever made. We were there for eight years. She thought we were going for one. And she told her boss in Sydney <laughs> that she was going for 12 months. She was my girlfriend at the time, decided to move down. She said, oh, no, we'll, we'll be back in 12 months. She didn't know she was in for eight years. Well, listeners, I can assure you that being a, being a proud dyed-in-the-wool Tasmanian expat, it's, uh, it's good to hear Ed speaks so fondly of my home state. And I can assure you, listeners, if you haven't been there, you need to get there. There's lots to do down there. The weather's perfect all year round, uh, and there's lots, lots of amazing scenery to see and and to take in. But Ed, one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk to you about was since you've gone through the whole transition journey, what have you learned about yourself as you've come through it out the other side, and now you are Ed Cow and the investor as opposed to Ed Cow and the cricketer? What can you tell us about that? That is a big question. Uh... Well, I think I'll say, I'm just going to, I'm going to break it up to make it easy for myself. I, I guess what have I, what did, what did sport teach me that I feel like I've applied to the second part of my professional career is probably how I reframe that just so that I feel like I can answer it. And the transferable skills are something that is so critically important that I think a lot of sports people underestimate about themselves. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So maybe we can get onto that. So I would say I, the key things that I learned were resilience. There's no, there's nothing quite as demanding as opening the batting in, in professional cricket, I don't think, in, emotionally uh, and, uh, and mentally more generally. To, to be able to celebrate the wins when you've had a, a shit day, and I hope we can swear on this or you might need to give that a bleep out. No, that's, uh, that, but, that's fine. But to watch George Bailey... You know, a great friend of mine score a hundred, and I've got a first ball duck. And to believe, you know, it, it's a it's a very different emotion to share in his success, which I love doing. And you learn that that that's not a skill that you can. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to humans, I don't think. But you don't, and and you, don't so, want to, you don't want to be the sort of person that practices it too much either. I suspect. No, that, that's it. That's it. I'll tell you what's more more enjoyable than watching a hundred is is scoring a hundred and, and being the one to win the win the game for your team. So certainly put resilience up. Uh, understanding what performance looks like. I think in the workplace, people people bandy around, oh, he's a high performer. People don't understand what high performance is until they you know, are playing for their job every week and how to get the most out of yourself, how to, how to search for mastery and incremental gains every single day and do that for long periods of time. That is... 
a high performance mindset. And I'm not saying there aren't people who haven't played sport who aren't high performers, but uh, I think it, it probably gets thrown around a lot. So there are a lot of things that athletes end up taking for granted, is my point, in their day in, day out, in terms of culture building, in terms of buying into team ethos and being a team player, that you know are things that are, are spoken about in the workforce constantly, but athletes, that's just a, that's vanilla, that's table stakes for them. And, and so I think the transferable skills are real. I think sport has a lot to learn from business and have, and, and uh, conversely, business has a, a lot to learn from sports and sports people that have performed at the highest level. So I think it's a, a wonderful, if you, if you can find your next passion to be able to pick your skills up and move them, and I liken it to and. I don't know if, if you agree with this analogy, but if you've climbed a mountain and you decide to retire, you actually you don't get to paraglide in halfway up the next mountain. That, that's not how it works. You actually go to the base camp again, which a lot of athletes mentally struggle with. Yeah, and I mean, I could, they think they, they they think they deserve to to come in halfway through. That 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 ain't true. But what this what the last mountain has done is given you a full range of tools and skills to get up the next mountain a hell of a lot quicker. And if you're prepared to, you know, drop the ego to to do some grunt work for a bit to re-establish yourself at the bottom, and then climb the next mountain, you'll, you know, I'm of the belief that you'll race past the other climbers of, of this next mountain just with the skills that you've learnt climbing the previous mountain. Yeah, look, it's a it's a great analogy, and I'm looking. I I'm not sure whether I've mentioned this on the podcast previously, but I mean, I quit a job which was my own business at 40 years old and started in finance completely with no no background at all and I'm, I'm still doing it I still love it and it's something that has been incredibly important to me I think the one thing that I've, I've learned a lot of things about there's a couple of things that really come to mind the first one is to your point you have to be resilient and you have to put in the effort but you can't do it on your own and that's one thing that you know I've really learned I've got unbelievably good colleagues around me who and amazing supportive family who have helped me through it and I suspect that that's the sort of sort of environment lots of professional sports people would want to replicate supportive professional friends and supportive family and non-professional friends so you can actually mold everything together to get what you want out of things but you've got to put the work in and I think that's the other thing that a lot of athletes I think are now starting to realize with respect to all the programs that are put together for them support programs by codes and by clubs and by um, associations and, and the like that you can lead a horse to water, but at the end of the day, you're the one that's got to go there and actually do the work um, to prepare yourself. Would you be, and I'm assuming, assuming you'd agree with that? Could not agree with you more. And uh, I mean, just to kind of break down what, what you just said, uh, you know, first and foremost, when you talk about networks, there is your intimate network of family, friends, but the importance of, of outwardly seeking other people who you feel can add value to you and conversely they can gain value from you so it's not a a one-way non-exchange of ideas or or concepts but building that out sooner rather than later but you know the second point around athletes have to do it themselves there's no there's nothing comes for free in the world and if you think that things are going to just because you're a famous athlete going to be handed a a silver platter with with your next job on it or your next passion that ain't going to happen and, and but that that often is the thought process oh, i'll be right someone give me a job well that's unfortunately not how people can then 
develop what their next passion should be. And you, you work for a lot longer than than you play sport. And there are very few sportsmen ever in the history of the world who had enough money to not work after after their given sport. And so you need to start thinking about that. There's no doubt. Talk about passion. Let's just tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing now and and how you've come to to develop that passion for finance. Obviously, it sounds like you. You know, with respect to the investment banking experience you had early on, there was a, if you like, an interest there. Talk a little bit about where you are now, and and also on a scale of one to ten. And I know this might be a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Is how would you rate your transition to date, knowing that you're on this you're on this you're on this journey, and you've still got you've still got a little yeah. way to go, as you mentioned yourself. Well, I think that's a, that's important again to reiterate. It feels like I'm two years out of sport. It feels like transition for me was a five year program before I finished and probably I've given myself let's say five years on the other side to really knuckle down and and work it out so two years through the the five seven all up so I'd probably say it feels like I'm on the journey to you know a eight or a nine but I'm at a seven so how I I work for a business called TM Growth Partners that is a, a fantastic investment firm based out of Sydney that are doing wonderful things and there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to work there when I was going through the whole process of you know what do I want to do investing was always something that I was interested in I'm from a business family historically sport was always something we loved but it was not a career path for anyone and so their their focus on understanding the people and culture of of the businesses that they're invested in felt like I could come in and create value from day one. And that for me was a a big emotional leap. I didn't want to be someone who was given a job, but couldn't add value. That was like, that was like the scariest thing of all things to do with transitions. I I I just don't want to be paid to do a job. I want to go in and create value for everyone, not just myself, but for, for the company I work for and the people and the stakeholders of that business. And so I felt like I could do that. And by doing that, I could create, well, I could learn all the other skills necessary and create further value. But that was kind of like my, my tip of the spear and, and why I wanted to work there. And so I, I love it. They're surrounded by great people, great people who are openly you know, mentoring me and, and helping me on my journey and transition. And they were very aware of, of that transition. So, you know, even little things like, I started working three days a week, you know, it's hard for most people to think about, but I was like, for, for the first six months, I just want to take my time with this. I don't want to put a suit on. I don't want to sit on a bus for an hour and a half getting to work. I, I just want to find a place that I feel like I'm understood and I can ease into this. And after six months, it was four days and now it's five. But knowing, having one thing I did to, and I'm a bit, being a bit long-winded here, in my transition period was when I was deciding where to work and what to work and and everything in between I interviewed I would say 25 um, ex-athletes who had done it successfully and not so successfully and kind of did my own little survey just to understand what their pain points were and a lot of them were I hate wearing a suit I hate the fact that I don't get to drop my daughter at school anymore or you know like there was a whole range of, of things and so I kind of worked those out before I went to work and kind of said these are the things that are really important to me and I really want to work here but 
let's just ease into this. And I think if he can do that, uh, and most I think most transitioning athletes these days, if they've had a half decent career, probably are afforded that time. You know, it, it's it's a much better way of, of sitting around for a year, either contemplating what you want to do or racing into something and realizing a year in you don't enjoy it. That's fascinating that you mentioned that you interviewed twenty five athletes. Did any of the, the responses they gave you scare you? I think every single person, uh, every every person I spoke to, even people that looked like they had transitioned really well, and you know what you would see from the outside as you know the pinups of athlete transition, all gave really honest and emotional responses to not only how they were feeling, but at the time, but even a few years on, how they had had coped. And, and none of it had been smooth sailing. So I think I needed that rawness, but it also, did it add to my anxiety? Probably not, but because it felt like at least I was getting the answers now and I knew what I was up for. I think if I'd not interviewed them or interviewed them after I'd started, it, it felt like I could kind of massage my own transition to alleviate the or, you know the similar pain points that they had described. And so I felt like I was getting ahead of the curve, so to speak. But it was interesting to see how uh, how consistent a lot of their tiny little pain points were and, and they felt easy to iron out. So I've kind of got on the front foot. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really smart thing to do. I and mean, I think the thing is, and you know, one of the key messages that always comes through these discussions is that it is no, never smooth sailing. And even those athletes who from the outside you might think or perceived them to have had an unbelievably simple transition. They all go through their own struggles for whatever reason, whether it's financial, whether it's whether it's mental, whether it's actually finding the passion. And I know a conversation I had with Steve Menzies, the rugby league legend, a couple of weeks ago. He speaks about finding that passion, and once he found the passion, he had a direction, and he had the ability to to leverage that, and uh, has gone on to do great things well away from the sporting sphere. Ed, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about just very briefly, is the bubble that is the Australian Test cricket team. Can you can you yep. talk a little bit about the, that environment? You played 20-odd tests, you know, over the course of a couple of seasons. And so what were the things that maybe surprised you about it once you were in there? And what are the things you've taken away that potentially could help others from an, a lessons perspective around what they might be doing once they finish? Yeah, so... I think important to give some context here. So I was 30 years old when I debuted, so well, 29, turning 30. So I was an older debutante, you know, at that point. They described me as a journeyman, even though I felt like I was still a very young sportsman. Uh, and so I'd seen enough of, and, and, you know, between uni and travelling and playing cricket in odd spots around the world as a, you know, as a bit of an odd ad hoc professional at times. I kind of knew what the other side of the fence looked like. And there are players that, you know, start playing international cricket at 21, these days, 20, 21, and they they have great careers, but the bubble exists to the point that, you know, you don't know what customs looks like at an international airport. You don't touch your own bags. You There's an expectation that you get off a plane, you get on a bus, you turn up at the hotel and your bags are already in your room. That is not the real world. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you that, listeners, he's uh, spot on. <laughs> and so 
you know, and they're little examples, but you get a, you very quickly can see if you're, if, if that becomes your entire life for long periods of time, how removed from the real world you get and how little gratitude you have for what you have. Uh, and so the cricket team, more so than probably any, any other sport, just based on time away uh, from home, probably creates this, this bubble. And there are lots of people who deal with it really well and some people that don't. So what are the lessons I learned? Uh, I guess the Australian cricket team is a is a little micro-community within itself and it, it's it's on tour, but at the same time people are coming and going across formats and it's, it's very hard to feel settled. And, you know, if you're a single guy on tour without your family and you're travelling to a part of the world where you don't leave your hotel room because of security concerns, it can be a really lonely place and, and people forget that. So, you know, I think understanding, you know, one of the, the lessons I learned was ha- how to fill in what can be productive to fill in a whole heap of downtime and, well, and what can I be doing to upskill myself in a whole range of activities because it's fine when you're at home and you train for four or five hours, let's say, and then you go home and your wife or your daughter's there or you might have a garden you tend to or you might be doing some study. If you're on a tour of India for two months and that's six hours, there's another 10 hours of not doing anything. And so finding a way to to really remove yourself from that bubble while still staying in it um, physically but almost removing yourself emotionally. You know, it's interesting you say that because most of the athletes that I've met either and who have been on this podcast or just people I happen to know all say pretty similar things that athletes are brilliant. In fact, they're world champions at wasting time and it's amazing how much time <laughs> time can be wasted just, just doing absolutely nothing and it's funny that you laugh because clearly – uh, you, you, you've seen it happen. You've probably done it yourself, and and it's just one of those things that you know. If there's an opportunity to to be gained and some some knowledge to be gained whilst you in your downtime, I think the message comes loud and clear that you should take the opportunity because at all the commodities that we we have in our lives, the one thing that we can't get back is time. Yeah, I think my the biggest piece of advice I'd give to any young athlete is do not buy an Xbox. Or for every hour that you want to play your video game, do an hour's study or education <laughs> because the hours I saw young people literally give to the world for no benefit, no benefit, not a minor benefit, zero benefit. And, and as you say, you, you can't get that time back. And to be able to use that productively and, and positively is, is incredibly important. We mentioned athlete identity earlier do you think that you've succeeded in moving away from ed cowan the cricketer to ed cowan the investor or is it still just too early from a time perspective and and i guess the other question to ask is there must be opportunities and times when being an ex-test cricketer and leveraging that would be helpful yeah i I love walking into a meeting and and they don't realize that you played test cricket they're, they're my dream meetings as opposed to shaking hands with someone or in this day and age giving them a little uh, elbow tap and, and they want to talk about, you know, the test match in Melbourne when such and such, you know, Peter Seale got out drama through the gate and you think, oh, dear, you know, this is getting derailed pretty quickly. But it's a interesting question because I never really felt 
well, when I was at my my best emotionally for long periods of time, I never looked at myself as Ed Cowan, the cricketer. I looked at myself as Ed Cowan, the father, the husband, the friend, the uni student, you know, so and cricket was always, you know, when I was at my, my mental best, it was Ed Cowan, the person who's pursuing a passion, who and it happens to be cricket. So I was never in it for the fame of, of playing cricket. I was in it for the mastery and the friendships and, you know, all, all the other kind of aspects. And so I think that made the transition easier. And even now, I don't think I'm, I'm not defining myself as Ed Cowan, the person who used to play cricket. It's can I can I be the person who is contributing the most to all the different burners in his life in the best possible way? And if I can do that, then I know I'll be happy. So my own identity, I learned very quickly, I guess, to, to un, unbundle myself from my cricket from an identity point of view. And I, I think I was, you know, was a, a beneficiary of that. This is not a cricket podcast, but we're going to digress for probably two minutes. Can you just talk about, and you mentioned this before, about pressure and, and uh, the fact that there's nothing too much more pressurised in a sporting context than opening the batting for your country. It's probably especially in another part of the world when you've got all but maybe a very small number of people who are supporting you and want you to succeed. Can you talk about the mindset of preparing to go out to bat either first day, won the toss, you're going into bat, or probably maybe slightly more challenging is when you've you've been fielding for a day and a half or nearly two days and you've got 15 minutes to get to stumps. I think you're sending me into a sweat. That's, <laughs> that's, Sorry, mate. <laughs> I used to lose hours sleep, you know, when you're if overnight, they're two for, you know, you're playing in India, two for 200 and you just know that they're going to get 550 and you're going to have to bat for 40 minutes. And you you fielded for two days, and it's forty degrees, and you know you you literally lay in bed thinking about it. A couple of things that kind of come to mind is, you know, even the you become very good at controlling emotion, and so you know I'll, I'll get really nervous as the coin was in the air, because even if the wicket was flat, conditions were good, you know that that pressure of performance was insane but as soon as you knew that you were batting it's like something flicked and you just went into this tunnel vision of right i'm gonna flick it on go do my warm-up know what i need to do I've done, you know and it's such a, a comfortable space for you once you know that you have to bat does it fascinate uh, does it fascinate you that and this is something that always amazes me about sport whether it's and team sport especially is that in your case there's 11 cricketers on the field in an AFL team, there's 18 players on the field, etc. And every one of those players will prepare themselves in their own way as an individual to, to ensure that they are then an effective team contributor. And I always find that fascinating. And one of the lessons that has come out of a whole range of things that I've done is you've actually got to just do what suits you and do what is makes you feel comfortable as opposed to try to be someone you're not. So I found when that speaks, we, we can go really deep here, but I'm a big believer in that. But a lot of coaches that I had weren't. And so, you you know, you do these outrageously long team warm-ups 
even though I was the only one that was walking out to bat with my with my mate. And the bowlers were then going to get a toasted sandwich and put their feet up. And I was, you know, I'd say, why, why can't I just do what I need to do, which is you know, I need to get my mobility right and hit a few balls and, and go and actually get my head in the right place. And so that, you know, that was always odd. But in terms of controlling your emotion, there, there's this next level of test cricket of the toss and your routine is completely, you know, for 10 years you're used to the set. The toss is the same time every game. You know, you, you get 45 minutes and so you know how to structure that warm-up. But in test cricket, there's an anthem, there's uh, welcome to country, uh, there's a whole range of things that kind of throw you off. And so you, you have to actually, and you know, singing a national anthem in front of 90,000 people on a boxing test is an emotional experience. And so the, the art of opening the batting is having no emotion in your life at that point in time and being completely ambivalent to emotion. And then to, to have that rush of emotion can, can be really hard to control. No, it's a fascinating thing. And I, you know, I always always worry about the uh, the mentality of opening batsmen, and it, it's a, it's I've only done it in amateur cricket a long time ago, very unsuccessfully, and yeah, the feeling is uh, is miserable. I can imagine that it's just extraordinary what you've just described. Now we're going to wrap up shortly because I know you've got some other commitments, but I want you to talk about the things that you learned about cricket and the support structures that cricket have put in place to help athletes transition over the journey that you've gone on. So you start in 2003, you exit 12, you know, a couple of years ago, 2018. And so obviously the, the Cricketers Association has really, has, has become very prevalent in the game now. And that's probably has coincided with your career in the, in the professional sporting ranks. But can you talk about the, the things that you saw as either a, a state player or a test player as part of the Australian system around the support for athletes yeah I mean that changed constantly and is still changing and is only getting stronger and you know shout out to the ACA the wonderful work that they consistently do in the in the transition space and I think they're a bit of a leading light for all professional sports in Australia but you know even basic things like each state having their own player development manager was you know the, probably the first step that came in and how that those programs that they enact can can filter out I mean it's it, it, there's an oddity in that the people that actually need it the most there are two kind of groups that need it most one is the fringe state player who you know gets churned out of the system in two years and they need constant support in terms of what their next career look like and almost counterintuitively the other group that is needs to be serviced the most but is probably the most underserviced is the test players or the international players who are constantly away from home and so because people think, oh, they'll be right, they've got lots of money, they play for a long period of time, you know, they'll work it out, they can rely on their own brand, you know. But it's often I'm now finding, having spoken to a lot of people who have come out of Test Cream in the last few years, is they're the ones that are struggling the most because they are the least prepared. They, don't, they haven't allocated the time, you know, the pressures are such they haven't allocated the time to educate themselves, they haven't allocated the time uh, to think about life after cricket and they usually, you know, the ego that made them such great sportsmen is the ego that's holding them back in transition. And I, and I don't use the word ego in a in a negative connotation here. It's just that that belief that they have. And so, you know, it, it's hard to to balance a whole range of you know that's the two ends of the spectrum. And then you've got eighty percent of players in between, which is the the bulk of the ACA members. So, 
considering the resource, both from a human capital point of view and monetary resource, they do an incredible job. Um, but there's always more to be done in this space. And if you if you think about your learnings and the and the things that you've picked up along the way, I mean, if you once again, this is a pretty big question to ask you, but if you were running Australian sport and you had the ability to do anything you you could do from a, a transition perspective, what would it be? Wow, where to start? Um, I would I would uh, have a mandatory earn or learn program for all professional athletes. Uh, that being, if if you're not working another job, you're at doing some kind of vocational study, and that doesn't need to be formal tertiary education. That can be doing a trade. It could be, but there is something else going on in your life as part contractually. And you know, this is dream. Like this is part of the sky stuff. But can, when you sign your contract, you do not. If one of those two things do not happen, you don't get paid from cricket. Uh, and then the second thing to enact that is a blanket professional development day every week, every week of the, uh, you know, of, of the year, not just the season, not just the off season. It's very easy in the off season for coaches to say, Oh, you know, have Wednesday off and go to uni. If that Wednesday coincides with, you know, you work the program in season. So it's not affecting your, your workload management around playing, but there is a day every, there is one day every seven days that is dedicated to professional development. And, and that's just becomes a standard. Look, it's a it's a fascinating answer because I think you're onto something in as much as one of the, the reasons why I'm so passionate about this area is the fact that I think that there needs to be a cultural shift in Australian sport. Uh, and this goes back to one of the things that we spoke about earlier in our discussion, and that is the whole issue of the, if you like, the onus of responsibility. Uh, now, obviously, we know and we agree that the onus of responsibility really does lie at the end of the day with the athlete. They're the ones that have got to get off their backsides and do it regardless of what their background is, what sport they play and how much money they earn or don't earn. But do you think that there's a duty of care that when a sport – and this, I mean, don't forget, people are doing this voluntarily. I mean, you, people aren't being forced to go down this path as a profession. They just happen to be very, very good at something that not too many other people are. Where's the, where's the onus or responsibility, you believe, from a sports perspective when it comes to ensuring that – an athlete who has given a lot and probably had a lot taken away from them uh, with respect to sacrifice and all the other things that go with it, where do you think the onus lies with respect to their respective sports around helping the people that have given a lot to them transition successfully? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I'd, I'd probably look at it in terms of I think the there are two onuses. There one, the first is the onus is on the administration to provide a framework that allows for best practice in professional development and then there is an onus on the player to embrace that framework and, well, not just players but the coaches and and, and, and actual culture around the teams that that is accepted and best practice. And when it's coming from the top down and it's coming from the bottom up, it feels as though that that will create as you say, a dramatic cultural shift. But if you've only got one, I think you need both is my point. Yeah. If you've, if you've only got a decree from the top or you've only got a drive from the bottom, you don't get the outcome. And so, you know, there really needs to be an understanding that the cultural shift needs to happen and we're all going to, we're all going to make sure that it does. And look, it's, a, it's, it's, 
I guess that's one of the big challenges of Australian sport moving forward because, you know, there's a sort of a camp 50-50, of coaches and administrators want you just to be absolutely and utterly committed to your sport, no other distractions, which means, you know, if you're not playing, you're preparing, as opposed to having that balance, which a lot of other people, you know, 50% think that it's really important and you're clearly in, one of the, in that camp because that's helped you scale the heights that you did from a from a cricketing perspective and I, I think that you know David Parkin who's been on this podcast is a classic example of, of a coach who has been very successful and allowed players to ensure that they had balance because he believed that that provided them the best opportunity to get the best out of themselves on a weekend when they were playing football and I think that you know one thing that really has come out loud and clear in this conversation it is is the fact that balance has certainly worked for you um, and hopefully it can work for others as they continue on their journey. Yeah, and people usually describe it as a balance because that's the easiest kind of mental model to apply to it. I, I like to think of it as a blend and and knowing that at different points in your career and at different stages in even those micro points of your career, different things will be important. And so you can fire up the burners of each. You know, you, uh, I like to think of it as one gas pipe and, you know, your burners are on the cooktop and the sport burner is at full tilt. And when the season's raging, that's at full tilt and professional development might be turned down a little bit. There's only one gas input. And then you might have a little injury for a week or two and the professional development burner can just come up a little bit more. So it's, it's never a, a balancing act, so to speak, because that makes me feel as though it's one or the other. You're making, you're not giving yourself permission for both at the same time. And so that kind of mentality of, of blending the two together always, you're always blending those two lives. Um, it's just dependent in, in, in what kind of ratio, I guess. It's a really interesting way to think about it, Ed. And as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, before we press play, I ask my guests the same question at the end of every interview, and that is all about what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you knew then what you know now about your transition and athlete transition to life after sport? Mm. Uh, it comes back to my father's favourite saying, and he says <laughs> procrastination is the greatest thief of time. Uh, and I think that is is so relevant when it comes to athlete transition because so many people put the thought off because it's something that I'll deal with later. But the biggest lesson I would say is it is harder than you think it's going to be. It's going to be longer than you think it's going to be and it's going to take probably a bit more courage than you think it's going to take. And so to, to think of yourself permanently in transition from sport to, to the real world is, is probably a, a better way of, of thinking about it. Ed Count, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. All the best. Thanks, Ed. Welcome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.